chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, Paul says, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Father, we humbly pause and ask as we continue now in our worship by opening the word of God together and just looking to it and to you to speak to us by the power and the ministry of your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would prepare us, help us to stay attentive, Lord, to be able to just have a heart that's expectant and just to give you our worship through the focus and the attention of what you would want to say to us through the truth and the authority of your word. May every reason behind why your spirit inspired these things originally find their place in ministering to us personally in this day and hour as we're spending this time together in the scripture. So please, Lord, bless your word and speak by your spirit's ministry. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen, amen. I encourage you to ask yourself the question, how is it that I relate to God? How is it that I relate to God as a child who knows that you're greatly loved? Or is it that you sometimes relate to God more like a slave that must fulfill the demands and obligations of a master? I guess maybe the more important question really is how does God want you to relate to him? Not so much how are you relating to him, but how does God want you to relate to him? Well, the Bible is very clear. God desires us to have a relationship with him, just like a child does with their parent. A loving relationship that's built upon intimacy and love and connection. God doesn't desire for us to be slaves that just fulfill duty. He wants us to relate to him as children to a loving father. And to be able to experience that connection, not as a slave in a cold way towards a master. And that's really what our text is explaining for us this morning here in Galatians chapter 4. Again, remember the backdrop as we finished chapter 3 last time. Paul's speaking to us here about this reality of having become a spiritual child of God. A son and daughter of God through our Lord Jesus Christ and faith in him. That when we exercise faith in receiving Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. At that moment, the Bible tells us we experience a spiritual birth. That is, we literally go from just being created by God to actually, from a biblical perspective, becoming God's child in a legitimate sense spiritually. We're now heirs of God and destined to inherit the promise of eternal life, the glory of our Father's kingdom. And Paul now wants to carry on with this idea that he's been discussing of what it means to be a child of God, what it means to be God's heir. So he, with that mindset, goes on now in chapter 4 by saying, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards, 
until the time appointed by the Father. So Paul here is using an analogy from the ancient culture regarding how a temporary status would exist for a time period until a child came to the set time that was determined by his father, that appointed time where he inherited his ultimate destiny and how there was this temporary status. A young child, though he might be the heir of the most wealthy and powerful father figure, though his father may be a king, that child did not immediately experience the fullness of their destiny, though they may be an heir to the greatest throne that existed. There was sort of a waiting period to be experiencing the fullness of the destiny that the child was one day going to inherit. For a time period, while the child was still immature, when they weren't ready yet, they didn't have the rights that they ultimately would one day experience. And Paul's saying to us here in this analogy in verses 1 and 2, the child during that immature waiting period when they weren't ready really did not have much more rights even than a household slave. You notice in verse 1 with me here, that's what Paul's conveying when he says, I say that the heir, as long as he's still a child that is in an immature status at that point, does not differ, he says, really from the slave, though he may ultimately be master or inheritor of all things he'll one day receive from his father. Though he's destined for something glorious, though one day he is going to have this wonderful experience in the inheritance of his father, he's not ready for it yet. He still has to be prepared to some degree. He has to still wait for that time and necessary that preparation process was to get them ready because he wasn't quite ready to fully appreciate the greater experience. That's why he says in verse two in our text, but the child remains under guardians and stewards until the appointed time by the father. And that kind of pictures there, this process we might say of the coming of age for the child. Uh, that was something that was very common in the Greek culture in the Jewish culture, they had that coming-of-age ceremony. Even among the Roman culture and all these different cultures, there was this concept where there was this coming-of-age at a certain stage and period of time. There was a set day when the status of the child would change, an appointed time when the father would allow that child to transition to full adult status. And when they transitioned to full adult status, they then were a mature adult, and they had different experiences and different responsibilities. But until that time appointed in the transition, which was set by the father, the child, Paul says here, had to live under the supervision, he says, verse 2, of guardians and stewards until that time that was appointed by the father. It was necessary that they have kind of guardians and stewards to keep them under control, to kind of help them for a season of time to stay out of trouble and to do what was necessary to make sure they stood on track for their future, which was a glorious destiny that was ahead of them, but they had to be prepared for it. And this kind of pictures, Paul saying, what God did and what God does with the law of Moses. It served in a way as a guardian. God used the law of Moses for a time period to prepare mankind for the ultimate destiny, which was to encounter a full relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. The law keeps a person in check morally. It serves as a guardian and a steward to kind of help a person stay on track spiritually to get ready to ultimately encounter Jesus 
in the fullest sense that God the Father desires. We saw that last week. If you glance back up in chapter 3 to verse 23, Paul, remember, was saying there, before faith came, that is faith in Christ, the finished work of Christ, we were kept under guard, he said, by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor. Remember the pedagogos, the supervising person in our life. The law was our tutor, it says, to bring us to Christ ultimately that we might be justified by faith. But he says, verse 25, chapter 3, but after faith has come, we are then no longer under a tutor. So just like the child going through that time period to be prepared for the coming of age experience, Paul says then going on in verse 3, even so we, following the analogy, were children, but times were in bondage under the elements of the world. See, when people were spiritually, you might say, immature and naive and unprepared for God's ultimate plan, which would come through the Lord Jesus Christ, we needed something in humanity to help us kind of stay on track, to keep us in check morally, to help prepare us spiritually, to keep us under control, to agree. And the law of Moses did this. It regulated humanity in a moral sense. It helped humanity to kind of be somewhat prepared for God's ultimate plan. So we once lived under the authority, Paul says, of the elements of this world. Now, when he uses that term there in verse 3, the elements of this world, the idea is under the elementary building blocks, we might say kind of the ABCs, morally, the basic fundamentals of what is right and wrong. And this is kind of what the law of Moses did. In a very fundamental sense, in an elementary form, like for a child, it defined very specifically what was right, what was wrong, and it gave kind of this structure where everything was spelled out real specifically, almost in the same way that you have to do with a small child in an elementary setting, kind of as you would in a kindergarten classroom. There needs to be lots of structure, very clear rules, a clear understanding so that you can help the child in that immature condition stay on track, be focused, pay attention, kind of keep things regulated. And this is kind of what the law of Moses did for a time period, Paul's saying. It's interesting, as Paul later reproves the Colossian believers for slipping into kind of a legal responsibility or, or excuse me, I guess a legal relationship, I should say, with God, Paul says something similar. In Colossians chapter 2, he says, Therefore, if you've died with Christ, again, to the basic principles of the world, he says, Why do you still subject yourselves to regulations such as do not touch, do not taste, or don't handle? In other words, Paul's saying, look, now that we've transitioned to becoming a Christian and we know Christ and God in a personal way, as Paul's going to talk about, he says, why would you go back and submit yourself to a bunch of rules and regulations? Don't touch this. You're not allowed to handle that. You're not allowed to do this and kind of living by rules and regulations. But at one point in time, before the appointed time of Christ's coming, which was the time appointed for God to bring the fullness of his plan to pass in bringing Jesus Christ to be our Lord and Savior, to a degree, you might say, people were enslaved to the demands of the law to keep its regulations, its obligations were keeping us in check, and they were hard demands to keep. But what Paul is trying to convey here is this was an inferior way, like the young child who's not come of age yet, 
living under the law was the inferior way of relating to God like a slave to a master. It pictures the less mature way to relate to God, needing rules, needing lots of regulations and restrictions to keep us in check. And for those of us by way of application, even today, it's a reminder that those who do choose to live their spiritual life in a legalistic way, we might say, those who say, look, we still need to keep all the Old Testament law of Moses and we need to live under the law and we're still obligated to fulfill all the demands and written obligations in the law of Moses. Or those even who just live in a legalistic way by establishing little rules for their lives spiritually and kind of a, a, a set of restrictions and codes and lists of what is spiritual and what's not spiritual Paul is saying that's actually not more spiritual. Now, that's important to realize because those who still want to live according to the Old Testament law or those who live in very legalistic ways a lot of times think that they're more spiritual. That's why they live that way. They actually think they're superior in their spiritual life because, hey, we still honor the law of Moses. Or we have all these lists of what it means to be spiritual or not be spiritual, and you don't live according to the standard of our lists, so you're inferior, and that's what a legalistic attitude ultimately conveys. But the Bible says those who are legalistic are actually less mature spiritually. They're living just like an immature child because they need rules and regulations and all kinds of lists of restrictions to live under the supervision of, to stay on track spiritually instead of learning how to just let the spirit of the Lord govern their heart from within and letting that be what directs their life, that they live under the law of the spirit, guiding them internally rather than all these rules and restrictions being what directs their spiritual life. So the law of Moses was something God had to use for a time, the Bible says, to kind of govern and guide humanity for a season to get us ready. But Paul goes on to say, verse 4, but, however, once that season had come to a conclusion from God's perspective, verse 4, but when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. So this describes here how at God the Father's appointed time in human history, Paul's going to tell us, once things were fully ready from God's perspective and everything was set in place from God's standard, then God brought forth the fullness of, of his plan and brought this transitional process with the predetermined work of the Lord Jesus Christ that was needed to prepare the way to bring us into the full close intimacy that God longed for all of us in humanity to know, which is a deep personal relationship with God as a child. So uh, let's consider what Paul's saying here in verses four and five. They're honestly pregnant with a lot of meaning. So I want to just kind of camp here for a few moments, if we could, of what really Paul is conveying to us. The first thing to take note with me in these verses is what God did. What God did. It tells us there in verse four, he says that God the Father sent forth his son to be born of a woman. So again, the idea here is humanity's sin, and we all sin. The Bible teaches us that. It shouldn't be something hard to be convinced of. We all fail and make mistakes. Humanity's sin, the Bible teaches, separates us from God. So humanity was separated from God because of the sinful condition among us relationally. 
and ultimately we can be separated from God eternally. If sin was not addressed, we would have been separated from God forever. And this speaks to us here in verse 4 of how God the Father, out of his love and concern for us, took the initiative and sent forth his Son, God, the Bible says, our Savior. That is, God became our Savior to address the problem of sin in humanity's life so that we would not be separated. And the way that God did that is it says he sent his son from heaven here, born of a woman, that is to, to live as a man, that God sent his son, not reluctantly, not because he uh, had to in a sense, but more because he desired to out of his great love for us. And he knew something was necessary, and he took initiative and purposely sent him on a divine mission. Romans 8 says, God did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Again, how wonderful to know in your life that for all of us, though we were sinful, we were in a lost condition, we were going to be separated from God forever. The Bible tells us Jesus himself said God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And this is what Paul is alluding to here, that he came being, noticed born of a woman. That is naturally implying born as a man with flesh and blood to live among humanity as a human being, the eternal son of God who always existed for all of eternity with his father in heaven the eternal son of God actually took upon himself a second nature. That is a human nature. Though he already was divine, he added humanity. He added a second nature to himself to become a man. Hebrews 5, referring to Jesus, speaks of the days of his flesh. I think that's very interesting because there were days when he was the eternal son of God, but then he came to earth, added humanity to himself to be a man as well. And those were the days of his flesh. And of course, the Bible teaches Jesus was miraculously conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary that he might be born as a man, but born apart from a sin nature, but allowing Jesus to then be fully God and fully man at the exact same time. That he would have this dual nature being fully God and fully human so that he could be in touch with both divinity and in touch with humanity and therefore the perfect mediator that we needed as humanity to be able to experience a reconciliation with God that had been lost through sin. Again, the reason God sent his son to live as a man are many. Let me just mention a few briefly before we move on. First of all, God sent his son to be born of a woman so that he could live here as a man, first and foremost, to, to reveal God clearly. The Bible teaches us this. We're told in Galatians, or excuse me, Colossians chapter 2 regarding Jesus that in him all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. That is, all the fullness of who God was was dwelling in Jesus bodily. Jesus himself in John chapter 14, if you remember, Philip was having a conversation with him. And, and as Jesus was talking to him, Philip said to him, please, would you just show us the Father? That'll be sufficient for us. In other words, he was saying, if you could just reveal to us what God is like, that would suffice for us. And it's at that point that Jesus said to him then in response, have I been with you so long and yet you've not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? In other words, Jesus was saying, you're asking to see the Father, to see Father God. He's saying, how long have I been with you? You haven't recognized me yet. I am God. 
in the flesh. And that's why Jesus said in his own admission, he who has seen me has seen God. Again, what a wonderful thing to realize. If we truly want to know what God is like, the best thing to do is not to ask others or let our own ideas direct us, but to look in the Bible at the Gospels and look at the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, because Jesus was the revelation of God living as a man, showing us what God is like and what God is not like. So Jesus said, I came first and foremost, to reveal God to humanity. That's why I was sent. Jesus was also sent as a man to rescue mankind from the eternal consequence of being punished in hell for our sin. First John 4 says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Again, Jesus came as a man that he might live the perfect life necessary that we couldn't live to satisfy God's righteous requirement for heaven. But then he took the punishment that we deserve and bore the wrath of God for sin upon himself so that we could be released from that punishment. So Jesus came to rescue mankind from sin's eternal judgment. He also came not only to die, but to rise again from the dead. And that allowed Jesus, being a man who died and then overcame the death process through resurrection, to also offer to us a release from sin's power and from sin's punishment upon our lives. Again, Romans 6, 7, and 8, very important chapters as a Christian you should familiarize yourself with in the Bible, teach us how Jesus came to defeat sin's power in our life. That is not only that we would be able to escape sin's punishment, but that we don't have to live under the control of sin's power. Paul says in Romans to us there in those chapters that sin shall not have dominion over you. That sin doesn't have to be our master because through the resurrection power, there is victory through the Lord Jesus Christ to live in newness of life. And we don't have to be enslaved to sin's power. Will we wrestle with it? Yes. But the Bible says that in Christ, that power to control us that sin once had has been broken. And now we can walk in the spirit of Christ and overcome sin's pressures and temptations in our lives. And one other thing that Jesus coming as a man did for us is also offered us restored relationship as sinful people with a holy God. That is, Jesus reconciled us back to God. He offers that to all those who come to him. First Timothy two says it this way. There's one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. So again, because Jesus came as a man, he as the man Christ Jesus can reconcile humankind with God, the father. And he serves as that perfect mediator being in touch with divinity and humanity. Notice also, if you would with me in verse four, when God sent his son. And this is unique to consider. Paul says in verse four, when God sent his son, he says it was when the fullness of time had come that God sent forth his son. Now, when the Bible says there, the fullness of time, it speaks of something that's being brought to completion. The idea there is time period that has been totally fulfilled. God, understand, had a predetermined idea set in his mind of exactly when he was going to send his son into humanity to live as a man, to ultimately die on the cross for our sins and raise from the dead so that Jesus could redeem mankind. And he waited until the fullness of that timetable reached exactly where it needed to be 
the time when he deemed best, when he felt humanity was most ready, that was when God sent his son in the fullness of that time, at a unique time in history, which from God's perspective was the best possible time that this should come to pass. And it's interesting to consider when Jesus came into human history, because think of all the different time periods God could have sent Jesus to the earth, but he sent him in the time period that he saw fit, which is interesting because it was at the time in which the Greek language gave pretty much a universal language to most of the known world. So it was a time when there was very free ability to communicate because the Greek language was adopted by so many cultures. It also was the time during the Roman Empire. And the Romans, unlike any other empire before them, built extravagant roads and roadways that could get people to places they never could get to before. Again, no doubt God strategically keeping in mind, once my son does what he does on the cross and in his resurrection, I then want to say to my followers, go into all the world and preach the gospel. That would not have been possible prior to the time when the Romans built all the roadways they did to be able to allow people to travel so freely as they did. So God waited for all things to be set in place. He waited for things to be ready. And then he brought forth his wonderful plan. Now, for those of us, again, thinking of this for our lives, we got to remember God always does things at just the right time. At the exact time period, God patiently waits for the precise time that he sees as best, according to his divine wisdom, of when it would be best to bring about his plan. And God will wait till things are all set up and everything is perfectly ready from his perspective. Then he brings forth his plan. And keep in mind, that applies, for example, on a larger scale. Maybe world events that happen sometimes or things that happen on a national level. God waits until just the right time. And sometimes God lets things happen at exactly the best time for them to happen. Again, as we take into consideration even what we're dealing with all over the world right now with the issue, the pandemic, with the coronavirus, take into consideration the blessed tool of technology that as a church, we are able to some degree do what we are doing right now in a way like prior to this, we never could in human history before, before this technology existed, and we can still connect and worship and live stream worship services. You know, how how wonderful to know that if indeed this was going to come about, that God in his sovereignty allowed it to wait till the set time where at least as a church, we could still do some degree what we're doing here. And in some ways, that's something that we can rejoice in rather than just be so utterly disappointed in regards to what's going on. And even on a smaller and a personal level in your own life, I just want to encourage you this morning, trust God's timing. Trust God's timetable when it seems like God's delaying and maybe you feel like in your life, why isn't God doing what he can? I know what you can do, just like people might have thought for history. Why isn't God sending Jesus? Why is it taking so long for the Savior to come? Why isn't God doing what he can? Why isn't God doing what he promised? And maybe why isn't God doing what it, what's needed? Can he see that I can see what he needs to do? When, when's he going to do that? Well, look, when God's appointed time comes and he has everything set up from his wisdom, then he'll fulfill his plan. And sometimes we need to keep in mind 
the timing may be something that God in his best interest is saying, I'm still putting some pieces together and I want the best success for this wonderful plan I have, but I got to wait till everything is put in place and all the pieces are ready so that when I bring forth my plan, it'll be the most successful and blessed, if you would, from God's perspective. Now, why did God send forth his son born of a woman? Well, Paul says in our text here, he says he sent him so that he might, verse 4, be born under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might then receive the adoption as sons. So one of the reasons Jesus was born as a man was that he might be the ultimate representative for humanity, we might say, as a second time. The Bible tells us that Jesus is often called in Corinthians the last Adam or the second Adam. Adam was the first man, again, keep in mind, that wasn't brought into existence by natural processes of a father, a human father. And Jesus became the second man, if you would, that was brought forth as a man that it didn't require a human father to bring forth Christ. So Jesus becomes the second Adam that he might kind of unwind the problems that Adam created as the first federal head and representative of humanity. So Jesus, born as a Jewish man, living under the obligation of the demands of the law of Moses, but thankfully Jesus did what you and I can't do. He perfectly fulfilled the law of God. He was able to satisfy the righteous requirements of the law of God in a way that you and I never could, in a way that we would never be able to, and Jesus never erred. He never made a mistake. He never failed to do something he was supposed to do, and he never transgressed and violated and did something he was not supposed to do. He satisfied God's law perfectly, and then he suffered and died as our representative, even taking then our punishment as those who were lawbreakers afterward. That's why Paul's saying to us here in our verses that Jesus lived under the law, notice, in order in our text to redeem those under the law. The word redeem speaks of paying a purchase price to get someone freed up from a prior status that they're currently in to bring them into a new status in their life. For example, you could, you could pay the purchase price of a slave. And if you paid the purchase price of a slave, you could release that slave from the power and control of a master or some debt obligation that they were under and then give that slave a status of freedom that they didn't have to be a slave anymore. They could either be completely free or they could then live under your control if you purchase them. And Jesus, what the Bible wants us to know, Jesus paid the high purchase price of our redemption. Jesus paid that price of our redemption and set us free from the control of the law as our taskmaster. So we're not under the obligation to fulfill all of the law's demands so that we could instead, listen, be ruled by grace. The Bible tells us that Jesus made us free from the law of sin and death so that we can now be ruled by the Spirit of God instead, that is ruled internally by grace and through the Holy Spirit governing in our hearts internally. Jesus, of course, also redeemed us from being slaves of just sin and Satan generally as well. He set us free from the power of sin and its punishment so that we could serve a new master that is the master, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is much wonderful 
and better master to be able to serve. And notice God's desire ever since he sent his son, Paul says at the end of verse 5, is so that we might receive, and this is what he's going to go on with now, that we might receive the adoption as sons. The Father in heaven does not want slaves. He doesn't want those who would live like slaves fulfilling obligations and duties and tasks alone. He wants to make each one of us a child, a child that he can have closeness with, a child who enjoys a good and loving father where there's intimacy and closeness and affection between us and the Father in heaven, where we interact with God in a loving relationship. And he intends to make us his children, Paul says here in verse 5, by the process, he says there, notice, of spiritual adoption. By spiritual adoption. And think of adoption, if you would, for a moment. Adoption is a really special thing. When we adopt children from a natural perspective here, uh, it's unlike the natural birth of a child. When you have the natural birth of a child, you're required to take care of them. Uh, And to some degree, you kind of get the child that you receive. You don't get to pick what they look like. Uh, You don't get to pick what they come out like with their temper. You receive the child that you get through the genetic experience of conceiving a child. And when you get a natural child, it's kind of your obligation to take care of them. It's what parents are supposed to do. But with adoption, it's very different. With adoption, you actually, as a parent, you're not obligated to take care of that child. You're choosing to select that child. You're making a decision of love to take a child into your family that was not natural born. So you're not obligated to take care of that child. You're making a decision because you want to take care of that child. You want to bring that child into the status of becoming your son or your daughter. You want to bless them with the privileges of being a part of your family. And so adoption is a a really special thing if you think about it. It implies a parent choosing to make someone their child and treat them like a child. And the Bible is saying that we become God's children by spiritual adoption. That is God the Father, through the payment, you might say, made by our big brother Jesus, paying the redemption price, He wants to adopt people, yet Paul says that we also have a choice in the matter to receive or reject that privilege of being adopted by God. He says the end of verse 5 there that we might receive the adoption as sons. So again, God did everything necessary through the work of his son Jesus Christ in giving his own son. God did everything necessary to make things prepared for the adoption But we have a choice whether or not we're going to receive the spiritual adoption from the Father in heaven. The final choice is ours, and we have to receive it. The Bible says in John 1, to as many as receive Jesus, God gives the right to become a child of God. So very important. Does God want to adopt everybody as his child? Absolutely. But we determine whether or not we're going to receive the adoption experience or whether we reject what God is offering to us. Now, for those of us who've received the adoption spiritually of God and become a child, Paul describes what happens going on here in verse 6, those who receive the adoption. He says, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. So once we become a son of God, a daughter of God, through receiving a spiritual adoption experience, 
This, Paul says, verse 6, is a part of what comes along with that experience, what's been provided for us. He says, verse 6, those who become God's children, he has now sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts to cry out within you, Abba, Father. That is the same God who sent forth his son Jesus into this world to make preparations so we could be adopted, that same God has now spent the, sent the very spirit of his son to come dwell inside of our hearts as his children, to live within us. Remember Paul said back in uh, chapter 2 that Christ lives in me. That is the spirit of Christ living within us. God has graciously given the indwelling of his Holy Spirit to everyone who accepts Jesus Christ that we might have an encounter with God as our Father in the most intimate sense. And this is one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit permanently residing within every child of God. God sends forth his Spirit to come dwell inside of us and then stay within us permanently when we receive Jesus Christ to enable us by the Spirit's ministry within to experience close personal relationship with God. So that we notice in our text can be prompted by the Holy Spirit to not just relate to God as a father, though that's wonderful, but actually, Paul says more than that, his spirit prompts us to cry out, Abba, Father. To cry out, Abba, Father. That word Abba there is a term that speaks of deep affection, of loving intimacy. It could be translated in today's language, Daddy or Papa. That's the idea there. It's something very special when a child goes from relating to their biological uh, parent as just father out of respect, you know, this is my father or, you know, hello, father. I mean, nothing wrong with that. And certainly that's a respectful term. But there's something really special that happens when a child goes from relating to their father as just father and addresses them as daddy. There's something very affectionate about that. There's something of intimacy and a close bond of tenderness and the Bible saying this is the indication of what the Father in heaven desires for us. Because notice, it says God has given you the Holy Spirit within because he's wanting to prompt us to relate to him in this affectionate way. That this is actually something that God is trying to bring about. He doesn't want us just to relate to him as a father alone, but he actually wants us to be able to look at him and relate to him as our daddy with deep intimacy and this is something that God wants and God is constantly trying to intimate and bring about within us by conveying things to our heart, prompting us within that it is the right way to relate to God. His spirit is leading us to address him as daddy with deep intimacy. Paul speaks of this in Romans 8 as well, expanding the idea. It says, those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. And the spirit you receive doesn't make you slaves, so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. What an amazing thing to realize that's the kind of experience that we can have with God now, that God wants us not just to be able to follow him in this cold uh, way of, of rules and regulations and hey, obey your father's rules in the household, but more, God wants us to relate to him like a daddy in intimacy and in closeness. Look, this morning, God wants 
intimacy with you. That's his desire. Are you pursuing that wonderful privilege is the question to ask. Are you taking God at his word and letting God's spirit bring this about in your life? Don't quench the Holy Spirit, even in regards to this, where you're kind of uncomfortable with getting close to God. God wants you to be as close to him as absolutely possible. James tells us if we draw near to God, he draws near to us. Look, God is never going to hold somebody at arm's length and say, look, the relationship's progressing a little too quickly. I think we're moving a little too fast. I want you to slow down. I'm not ready to get that close yet. That's never going to be the case. God will let us be as close to him as we desire to be. What a wonderful thing. There is one relationship where you're never going to grow old on that person. They're never going to change their mind. They're never going to become so disappointed that they don't want to spend time with you anymore. God forever and ever offers you complete acceptance, and he says, let's be as close as possible. As close and intimate as you want to be, God will allow you to experience closeness with him on a deeper and deeper level of intimacy the further you pursue it with him. What a wonderful thing to know that God is offering that. Paul then says in verse 7, Therefore you are no longer a slave, he wants us to remember that, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. So again, he's reminding believers that our status has changed. Status has changed from slavery to sonship. Again, as we've said, the slave typically had no real relationship with a master. They lived by duty and obligation alone. A son, on the other hand, relates to a father by relationship, knowing they are loved. Paul is saying, look, no, he's saying, you're no longer a slave. Don't live like a slave. Relate to God as a son or as a daughter. And again, this just strongly emphasizes, as I've said, how much God wants relationship. He wants intimacy. He wants our priority as a Christian to be cultivating relationship with him. And in this week ahead, I encourage you, uh, be careful. Evaluate your spiritual life. Is it just becoming rules and regulations and things that you do, your little spiritual duties, or are you cultivating relationship with God? Ask God to help you. He wants to help you in relationship. Ask him to help you stay relational. And Paul also says here in the end of verse 7, as he said to us in chapter 3, that we are now the heir of God through Christ. That is, we stand to one day inherit our Father's kingdom, the kingdom of God, the glory of heaven. And again, an inheritance is enjoyed by an heir, not because that heir earns the right to the inheritance, but because of who they're related to alone. Uh, You can be a very bad boy and still get the inheritance if your father's a king at the end of the day. And what a wonderful thing. It's not based upon our performance, but it's a free gift that we inherit through our relationship with God. Peter, writing about this assurance, says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance, listen, that's incorruptible, that is, it's never going to, get rotten or or somehow going to wear out. It's an incorruptible inheritance. Heaven will continue to be wonderful forever and ever, as long as we're there. Undefiled. Nobody messes it up. Oh, I'm afraid to go to heaven. I might sin and mess up the whole place. No, nobody can mess it up. Nobody defiles it. It's a perfect, pure, holy place. And he says, and it's reserved in heaven for you. If you know Jesus Christ, there is a reservation for you to go to heaven and nobody's going to alter that reservation. 
What a wonderful assurance. Paul says, verse 8, But then indeed, when you did not know God, that is before you had a relationship, you once served, he says, those things which by nature are not God's. So he's reminding them, again, of how there used to be a time when they weren't in relationship with God and they were miserably enslaved in sin. He says, there was a time when you didn't know God and you served instead other things that by nature weren't even real gods. But he says, now that you know God personally, a change should exist in your life. You're no longer in that place where you're serving other things. And look, everybody serves something. Everybody's driven to worship something. In the past, the Galatian believers served false gods, things of their own making. They were controlled by slaves and wrong desires directing them to pursue things that just left them empty and miserable. But ultimately, they came to a place where they were set free that they might have a fulfilling relationship with God. And Paul wants to remind them of this, saying, look, why would you trade off what you had, which was way worse for what is wonderful and something much better that God is offering to you now? You've been set free so that you can have relationship with God instead of being ruled by empty things that are directing your life in other ways. That's why he says, verse 9, but now after you've known God, or rather known by God, so now that you have a personal relationship with God, how is it, he says, verse 9, that you turn again back to weak and beggarly elements to which you again desire to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. So Paul's asking, why once you've been freed from slavery and being in that condition and become a son, why would you choose, he says, to return back to something that's another form of slavery again? And he's referring to legalism. He's saying, why would you want to go back to being a slave again? Because really, that's what legalism is. Paul was shocked that they would turn again, he says here, to weak and lesser elementary things of law-keeping instead of just living in a relationship with God and letting his spirit guide them from within. In verse 10, he's just giving an example one example of how they would do this, trying to keep the law and its rituals instead of walking in relationship with Christ. He says, you're doing things like observing days and months and the seasons and the years. Again, these things that were prescribed by the Mosaic law. And what Paul is saying is, look, that religious lifestyle, if you go back to that, it's going to rob you of a healthy relationship with God. So Paul says to him, tell me, he's asking, do you desire to be in bondage again? Do you want to go back to just being a slave again? And the thing he's trying to drive home to the Galatian believers and to you and I is legalism is just another form of slavery. It's just religious slavery. To put yourself under the obligations of little lists of rules and regulations of this is what it means to be spiritual or this is how a person really lives righteous. To put yourself under legalistic rules and follow those rules Paul's saying here, that's just another form of slavery. If you're being legalistic, you're just enslaving yourself again. Why would you want to go back to bondage and slavery when God wants a love relationship and he wants intimacy and closeness? Notice Paul concludes verse 11 saying there, I am afraid for you, lest I've labored for you in vain. So again, so worrisome was Paul about the danger of legalism's destructive effects upon the spiritual life of a Christian, Paul was truly afraid, he says there, verse 11, that his spiritual labor might have become in vain among them, that is worthless. Now, that's some pretty strong language. 
But again, it's reinforcing how much that God does not want us to operate like slaves and like he's just our master up in heaven. God wants intimacy between a father and a child. And if all the Galatian believers did was become slaves in a different form, trying to be more spiritual by rules and regulations and lists, he's saying that's just going to rob God of the whole purpose of what he did in sending his son in the fullness of time to die on the cross, to raise from the dead so that we might be redeemed from those things and receive the spirit internally so that we could say, Abba, Father. And that would rob God of the very thing that he did in sending his son. Hey, this morning, let me ask you, what is your current experience with God truly like right now? Are you relating to God kind of like you're a slave and he's a master and it's about duty and obligation, your spiritual life? Or are you relating to God like he's your father? In loving intimacy and close relationship, God is a father. He wants children. He wants to experience a father-child relationship. Let me encourage you in this week ahead, be God's child. Just be God's child. That's what pleases him most of all. And if you have never received the adoption of God through his son, Jesus Christ, that's how you become his child. And you can choose to be adopted this day by calling upon the name of the Lord to be saved. And God will adopt you spiritually and fill you with the spirit and make you his child as well. Would you?